Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis 37. Today we begin a new series, and we start that series in Genesis 37. On your way there, I will remind you that we have found an interesting habit in these series as of late. You'll notice in the bottom right corner of your notes page in your worship guide, there is the chapter or chapters that next week's sermon will be um, rising up out of. And my encouragement to you as we make our way through the rest of the book of Genesis is that you read every day that assigned reading. Every day. Just read it again each day. And then Sunday when we gather together, whatever word I have to offer is, is only um, to add to whatever thoughts or discoveries you have had all through the week. Uh, so I'm going to encourage you to, to do that, to read your text as you move toward next Sunday. For today, we begin in Genesis 37, verse 1. Hear these words. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, who you'll remember is Jacob, a new name. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a, a long robe with, with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen, the dream that I dreamed is this. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, Suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. I don't know why they would be upset about that. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of these dreams and his words. He had another dream, and he told it to his brothers, saying, Look, I've had another dream. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we all indeed, I and your mother uh, and your brothers come and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him 
But his father kept the matter in mind. The reading of the sacred word, it is reliable. It can be trusted. Let's pray. Most loving and gracious God, God of these, your worshipers. You know them. You hold within your hand every thought, every emotion, every fear, every hope. During these moments of study, O Lord, I pray that you would alleviate, that you would liberate, that you would transform. Show us something that changes everything. For we are watching. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So today we do begin a new series. A new series which I've got to tell you why we are doing this series. I had so much fun with you in our last series. Moving from one chapter to the next through the book of Genesis so in many ways, this is a continuation of our Patriarchs and Matriarchs series that we have just ended just two weeks ago. If you missed any of those, those sermons, if you missed any part of that, I encourage you to look online and, and uh, where we archive those previous messages and, and catch up in case you miss a part of this backstory that sets up this current series. But today we move past the Patriarchs and the Matriarchs. You know, it was in Patriarchs and Matriarchs where we study about these, these people discovering for the first time this promise, this promise of a way of life that if we were to yield to it, if we were to say yes to it, this God of covenant, this God who pays attention, who comes down and reckons with people, we paid attention that those who said yes to that kind of God lived a life of incredible adventure, a life full of faith. It was never perfect. It was never an easy walk, but we listened to the stories of Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah. And we said to those early mothers and fathers of the faith, teach us. Teach us about this very journey that we're trying to make because we suspect that you made the same journey. Tell us what we're missing. Tell us what we need to do, how we need to be, live, love, and we did. And we ended two weeks ago in chapter 32. Chapter 32 was the night before this big confrontation between Jacob and his twin brother Esau, 20 years of enmity, 20 years of, of animosity and bitterness, and they were going to meet the next day. Well, there are some chapters that unfold between that chapter, 32, and the chapter that we're beginning in Joseph. So let's do a little bit of housekeeping right here. There's 32, 30, there's, I'm sorry, there's 33, 34, 35, and 36. There are four chapters. And, and these are stories that are kind of independent stories. They can almost sit on their own. Uh, they're somewhat not related and somewhat related to the overarching narrative or the arc of Genesis itself. That's A-R-C, by the way, not A-R-K, because there's one of those in Genesis 2, I suppose, right? But there are some stories that kind of stand on their own. In chapter 33, here's what happens. In chapter 33, just, just so you know, um, Jacob and Esau meet, and they make peace. 
In chapter 34, Jacob expands his family and they settle the land. They have some run-ins with the neighbors there, but there are some great stories. I recommend you read it. In chapter 35, some very interesting things happen, big turning points in the life of this family because Rachel, the one whom he loved, this passionate love relationship he had with his wife, Rachel, she died. And we read about her funeral. But not only that, his father, Isaac, one of the patriarchs, he dies as well. In chapter 35, we have two funerals in one chapter. In chapter 36, it's interesting. In chapter 36, there's some backstory about Esau, Jacob's twin brother. It's some backstory that really is interesting, but it's not completely related to what we're about to study. You can take it out and read it on its own. It, it almost does for the Joseph stories what Rogue One does for episode three and four. Does that community, you, you're right? So it's, it's really great. It's a great story. It kind of connects some dots, but you can live with it or, or without it. It's good. I'd recommend you live with it. But today, we're in 37. Today, we are introduced to a man who is unlike anybody else in Genesis. There's nobody like Joseph in Genesis. In fact, if you just want to take the anatomy, the anatomy of this book itself, 14 chapters are devoted to talking about one man, Joseph. 14 chapters weren't devoted to Abraham. We didn't spend 14 chapters talking about Isaac or Jacob. Even if you were to take the first 11 book chapters of the book of Genesis, that you know, Genesis has three major sections, 1 through 11, which tells us some really interesting things about beginnings, creation and fall and a flood and the post-Diluvian era where there's a table of nations and the Tower of Babel, some really great stories, but it's a different kind of Bible, a different kind of literature, a different kind of story. But even in those 11 chapters, no one is devoted more time to than Joseph, 14 chapters. You got the 1 through 11, then you have the patriarchs and matriarchs, and now we find ourselves in 37 with Joseph, a man for whom you will be hard-pressed to find a single negative word said about Joseph in the entire Bible. Not a negative word. He did nothing wrong. <laughs> he said nothing wrong. He was a man of extraordinary integrity, even though he would live through moments that would cause him to test that integrity. But i got to tell you, if we're going to step into a study on the book of Genesis, if we're going to step into a study on the life of Joseph, as strange as it may sound, I think there may be a verse of Scripture that sets the table for us better than any other, and it's not even in Genesis. The verse I want to start a study on Joseph with comes from the New Testament. In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, we read these words. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And I've told you before, I love a different translation that handles that Greek a little bit more literally. It reads it this way. We know that in all things, God works for good. For those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose, God is up to something always, and that something is always something good. And that's important to hang on to because we're about to walk alongside a man for 14 chapters who in the long arc of his life experiences every heartache and hurt and injury you can possibly imagine. He is stripped of dignity. He is beat up, or worse, he's beat down. If you get beat down, that's worse than getting beat up. He gets beat down. 
He gets thrown into a pit. He gets sold into slavery. He gets entrapped with seduction, lied upon. We'll get to that next week. And through everything that he goes through, there's something at work in the, the book of Genesis. Because we get to the very end of the book of Genesis. All right, so spoiler alert. Okay? Spoiler alert. We get to chapter 50, which we'll get to in a few weeks. And there he is because of a series of remarkable events. We watch how God helps elevate him to a position of power and authority and influence. And at the end of this book, he's surrounded by the very ones who wanted to do him in. He's at a funeral again, this time the funeral of their father, Jacob. And at the funeral, strange things can happen at funerals, you know. At the funeral, he's standing there now, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, and his brothers are worried, they're afraid. Now that he has come to this place of authority, will he do us in? He's going to kill us all. He'll take his revenge. And in that moment, looking back over his life, seeing now in retrospect what you can't see in the present, he offers the most beautiful description of what he thinks God was up to all along. In chapter 50, we read these words, As for you... You intended evil against me, but God intended it for my good. In other words, in all things, God works for good. And we are about to watch his life unfold and in some places unravel. Yet all through the weaving of the story of Joseph, we see present in every encounter, in every heartache, in every disappointment, in every despairing experience, we see weaved in there what I'm going to call here the hidden providences of God. The hidden providence. Sometimes God's best work is hidden at first. It's subtle. You can't even see it when it's underway. Most of the time you only see it when you're looking in the rearview mirror over your life. The hidden provinces of God. Put another way, this is how I want to talk about it. Next slide. Put another way, the subversive love of God. As we walk with Joseph, we're going to see all the the influential, powerful forces around his life attempt to bring him down, and yet God has a resilient, subversive love that will not quit on Joseph, nor on you. So why is it important that we have this study? Because I am absolutely convinced that there is somebody who is gathered in this place today who if you were to take just a screenshot of the, the, the experience that you're living right now, maybe you're going through a season and it's not good. And like Joseph, if he were to take a screenshot of any one of those episodes in his life and only consider what he's currently going through, he and others around would assume that his life is over. But I want you to walk with Joseph a while so that you see that there is a longer arc to your life and it's weaved throughout with the subversive love of God, hidden providences carrying you along the way so joseph had this inner aliveness in him that's the best way i can think to talk about joseph 
And this inner aliveness when he was born, it was, it was, it was easily seen, this kind of spirit, this kind of soul. It was full of, of color, and his father recognized it. In fact, one of the early verses we have gives us an indication of what the father saw, what Jacob saw when his son, the son of his old age, was born. These are the words. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other children because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a long robe with sleeves. Or the traditional translation of that is he had made him a coat of many colors. He had made him a coat of many colors. I see some of you have actually, in preparation for today, worn colorful clothing. I suggest that because we're not a very liturgical congregation, we don't wear robes and stoles, I suggest that for these next several weeks, fill the place with color. Do it. Fill the place with color and worship with an array of vibrancy as we study this person who was born with an inner aliveness that was in full technicolor. His father saw it and made him a robe. Now, the robe, we believe, is basically a special robe with designer sleeves. There's something unique about the sleeves. But regardless of what it looked like physically, the power of this part of the story is in what the robe symbolized. It symbolized the blessing of the Father. It symbolized authority. He was cloaking his son with an external demonstration of what he saw on his soul. Full of color, this boy. Call him a visionary, call him a dreamer, but he just thinks, speaks, lives, breathes color. And so he clothes him, watch this, with a garment that demonstrates his true, authentic self. Now you've heard me talking a little bit before about Parker Palmer. Uh, he's a Quaker, and he is uh, an author, a remarkable author and leader. And he, among others, talk about the true self and the false self. And, and they talk about how you and I are never closer to our true, authentic self than when we are born. When we are born, we are closer to the truest, most authentic version of what God had in mind than ever before, because it's before we we are clouded and cluttered with the world's expectations. There's something raw about when we are born. So when we are children, we are close to our true selves. Because we don't pretend things. In fact, well, no, we pretend as children, but pretension is a game that children play on purpose. They don't pretend in their relationships. They don't pretend with what they like or don't like. They will let you know. They will let you know what they're for and what they're against. Parker Palmer says, as a grandparent, how many grandparents are here this morning? All right. As a grandparent, he says, something happens. He said, I see in my granddaughter something of an image of her true self, and I recognize it, and it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. It is, it is who she was meant to be by God, and sometimes parents can't see it all the time because parents are just doing it, just making it, trying to make it happen. He says, sometimes there's such a busyness that we can barely recognize and call them by the right names, let alone see something that is authentic and true. He said, but something happens when you become a grandparent. And he said he was watching, he was watching his granddaughter as she was very young, and he decided, I think I'm going to do something special. I'm going, to, I'm going to write her a letter every day. Every day I'm going to write her a letter about who she is, about, about 
the things that she used to giggle about, the things that she used to delight in, what kind of pictures she used to draw, what kind of music she used to, to, to listen to, and how she would dance, and I would, I'm going to write her letters. And he did, and he wrote a letter every day to his granddaughter, and on her 18th birthday, gave her a bundle of letters and said, this is who you are, in case you forget. He says that sometimes parents are so busy they can barely see it themselves, but Joseph was old when he had his son. He was the son of his old age. I think with time you begin to see, and only time will give you those kind of eyes. So he cloaks Joseph with this coat of many colors because that's the kind of soul this kid had. Oh, that we would cloak our children that way. That we would learn to be able to see in them what God has put in them. And instead of cloaking them with our expectations, uh, take this path, uh, go to that school, start this career. Instead, we fashion a coat. I don't really sew, by the way. But, <laughs> but if I did, it'd look like this. What if we could fashion a coat that would cover our children with a reminder of who they were made to be. I think this is what Paul was up to when Paul talks about what happens to us when we say yes to Christ. He talks about it in, uh, next slide, in Galatians. In Galatians, he talks about it this way. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. In another place, in Romans, I believe, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus. And I just love that, especially while we're talking about Joseph, because in Paul's mind, it's as if, well, look, if you have said yes to Christ, you're new. There is a newness in you. The old has passed away. The new has come. Behold, a new creation in you. And so if, if you're in Christ, you are at the truest place who you were meant to be. So put on Christ on the outside. And let the vibrancy of your multicolored soul show. So we made him a robe, and, and, and that's, that's what dreamers do, you know. They wear their colors on the outside, and this was a dreamer. His problem is he told his, his people about his dreams. Some dreams you just kind of, you know, keep to your... He's had these dreams, and they're, they're fantastic dreams, and the dreams are strange, one of the dreams, he dreams that he's in the field working and his sheaves stand up and all of his brother's sheaves bow down. The other dream, he, he dreams that the sun and the moon and all the stars, well, they, they bow down to him. And clearly, the family is kind of irritated at the least, angry at the most. But the way we're told about it, I find fascinating. Here's the verse that we read a moment ago. What kind of dream is this that you have had? This is his father speaking. Shall we indeed come and I and your mother and your brothers and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Can we hang with that phrase for just a moment? Because don't forget, his father Jacob was a dreamer too. His father Jacob, you know, he has to posture in front of the family because that's what you do at Thanksgiving, right? You posture, now that's not acceptable. We don't do that in this family. Don't dream, don't talk about your brothers that way. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? But 
he kept the matter in mind because as he listens to his own son, the dreamer, the multicolored soul of him, tell about this dream that he's had, Jacob remembers hearing his father and his grandfather talk about a promise. And he remembers hearing stories about his grandfather going out and looking at the night sky and, and God saying, look at the stars, as many as there are, you'll have this many. As many as the sands on the beaches of the earth, the grains that you can find, you'll have more kids than that. And, and, and these dreamer language promises. See, it was Jacob, the father, the dad, who has to chastise him publicly, who kept these things in mind because he remembers. You remember a few weeks ago, he's sleeping at Bethel and he lays his head upon a stone pillow, remember? And we said that the stone pillow was a leftover piece of stone from an altar left by their ancestors. And what does it mean to sleep upon the dreams of your ancestors? And that night he has this dream of a ladder that goes up and down and access to God and God's access to him. See, Jacob was more of a dreamer than he had remembered. And when he heard his, the son of his old age talk about dreams, he kept the matter in mind almost like it kind of reminds me of the New Testament when Mary treasures these things in her heart. These wonderful stories about Jesus and the Magi come and bring these gifts and Mary hmm, treasures these things. She doesn't quite completely understand them, but she, she tucks them away. Twelve years later, he's in the temple and they can't find him. Where did he go? They find him in the temple teaching the other rabbis, right? Where were you? Well, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And she treasures these things in her heart. There's something about this kid. And Jacob recognizes there's something about this kid and so he listens to the dream. So can we talk about the dream for a minute? All this rising up and bowing down is fascinating to me because it's not just about Joseph. This rising up and bowing down, you and I know what's about to happen. On a very literal uh, level, you know if we read the next few chapters, that's what happens. He's sold into slavery. He becomes influential in Egypt. Then when the famine comes, he has the answers. And because he's wise and prudent and figures out a way to survive, all the neighboring countries around, including the empire itself of Egypt, well, they, they yield to his, his wisdom. They bow before him. So you and I know, spoiler alert, this is going to happen, but it's more than just a dream about the world bowing down to him. I want you to follow this. Because there was an aliveness in him that he could not hide, he wore it like a coat. He was dreaming of bowing down to that thing that is in him. That thing that is in him. It, it reminds me of what Jesus said, that right now there is something in you. It is the aliveness of the kingdom of God. Right now, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, this, this way of being alive is alive in you. He called it the kingdom of God, a reign or a realm in which God is absolutely in charge. And this way, this kingdom of, of God was exemplified in the life of Jesus and he was the compassionate one, the merciful one, the self-emptying one. He was the one who taught us how to love an enemy, forgive a debtor, welcome a stranger, give care to the oppressed. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, through my way. I am the way. What way? 
Well, watch me and you'll see. And then he lived the way and said, that thing is in you too if you yield to it. And Paul best expressed it in Philippians chapter 2. He said, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God so highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. Now watch this. Listen for Joseph in here. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, you and I believe, whether we say it every week or not, we believe there is coming a day when all the world will bend the knee before the Lord our God. We believe with all of our heart that there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will see every kingdom bend before him, yield, bow down like sheaves bowing down. And if we really believe that, then we hear Joseph as if it's a foreshadowing of that thing that's coming. There is an aliveness, a kingdom, and it's in you, and it's in me, and if we yield to it, we can experience like a multi colored soul we can experience it but every kingdom bends before it this is why Handel in in the writing of his messiah in the in the hallelujah chorus but this way the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever right so in joseph there is something bubbling up, emerging, and that is a dream of this day that is coming in which all things yield to the power of the love of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so we get a foreshadowing of that in Joseph. But do you know what the world does with a dream like that? The world attempts to put it out to snuff out the flame, to dull the color. And in every possible way, it attempted to do the same with Joseph. We read about it when he comes to his brothers in the field and the brothers see him coming and they are over it. They are done with this dreamer and hear the words. When they see him coming, they saw him from a distance and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. What a powerful and haunting word. We'll see what becomes of these dreams. Will these dreams live? And in almost every human way, he was stripped of his dignity, beaten, crushed, torn down, and yet there was in Joseph, we, as we continue to study these next several weeks, there was an unflappable part of who he was. There was something so deep in him, in his technicolored soul, that could not be dimmed, that could not be extinguished. It reminds me of the martyrs of the first and second century, and undergoing the most immense persecution they could take their lives and they could take their, their families from them. 
And yet there was a part of them that could not be touched. And out of that context, we read in 2 Corinthians these powerful words. In 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven into despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I don't know if you have along the way in your journey ever experienced the kind of aliveness that we're talking about in Joseph. The kind of aliveness that Jesus preached about, the kingdom of God. I don't know if you have experienced that inner aliveness that I'm talking about. And if you have, I don't know if perhaps you've experienced ways in which the world attempts to strip you from it. Or strip your truest self and strip your dream from you. But I'm, I'm telling you this morning that there is a part of you that cannot be touched. It is your soul. It is the core of who you are. And it is that part of who you are that every day must be nurtured and cultivated and tended and watered. Every morning when you wake, you, you should not move into the rest of your day without sitting for a while in the silence of the God who put it there. And in 2 Corinthians 3, there's this beautiful image of sitting in this divine gaze where you look into the face of Christ and Christ looks into the face of you until he sees something in you that reminds him of himself and when he does, he holds up a mirror to you. Now that's, now that's a devotion in the morning is to wake and be reminded of that part of you that cannot be crushed. Now, the brothers attack him. They throw him into a hole. They strip him of his coat. They soak the coat in animal's blood, and they take it to Jacob, and they hold it dripping with some animal's blood and say, he's dead. The dreamer, the dream, he's dead. And Jacob believes. He believes. And he won't be consoled. He's like every parent I know who's lost a child. No matter what you say, there's nothing that can remove that pain. It's just, it is what it is. And Jacob has lost the son of his old age and says, I will not be consoled. And there's this belief that it's all over, the, the dream and the dreamer itself. But then at the very end of the chapter, there is this hint, this hint that it's not over. It comes in this verse here. Meanwhile, the, Midians, or the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, one of Potiphar's officials, the captain of the guard. And then the curtains close. Roll credits. There is a hint at the end of this chapter that the dream is not dead and the dreamer lives on. And I just wonder if perhaps that's all we need sometimes is a hint. Sometimes all we need is a hint that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Sometimes I wonder if all we need is a hint that in all things, God is up to something, God is working for good. So if you need a hint this morning, can I just get you to do this? Put your hand on your chest. Take a deep breath. And feel your respiration. Take your finger and feel your pulse for a moment. Just place it on your own wrist and feel your pulse. You're not dead yet. Hmm. And as long 
as you are not dead yet. There's a part of you the world in all its destruction cannot touch. Just a hint. But God is up to something good. Let's pray. God, remind us this day and allow your reminder to stick that you're not finished and neither are we. In all that we are experiencing and enduring, whatever it is that each of us in this room is facing, Lord, I pray that your spirit would remind us that you are closer to us than our own breath and you are the divine metronome giving our hearts beat and rhythm. Give us a hint this day that we're not dead yet. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.